Amen. In 1967, there was a Dutch excavation team, a group of archaeologists, who made a discovery. And they made a discovery in an area called Deir Allah, which you see on the screen behind me in the top left, and, uh, or the, all the way left. Uh, this is a place near the Jordan River. And what this team of archaeologists, this Dutch excavation team, discovered were a series of inscriptions. The place known as Deir Allah is in the top middle. That's an aerial view. And then right below that, a more close-up view. And in and among these uh, carved-out areas, they discovered some leftover texts. There were texts that were plastered on a wall, some of which plaster had been crumbling and discovered on the floor. These texts were written in red ink and black ink. And uh, on the top right, there are some uh, close-ups of some of this crumbled plaster. And on the bottom right, some of what's been able to be laid out and looked at and studied. This accumulated over the excavation to number about 119 fragments of plaster that had black and red ink on them. And um, what seemed to have been the case is it was originally all on this particular wall made of plaster, but an earthquake or other uh, events had caused things to crumble and give way, uh, which is why certain excavation and digging had to reveal more. Now, you might be wondering, why am I bringing this up at the beginning of Numbers 22? Oh, because these inscriptions talk about a person named Balaam. These inscriptions discovered in 1967 have fascinated Old Testament archaeologists. Uh, as they were able to piece together texts, some of which seem to be uh, versions of Aramaic and even some Canaanite language, the content has been incredibly fascinating. There is indeed, among these texts, a particular man known as Balaam who was mentioned. Now, if that was all that was there, you might say, well, you know, in the ancient world, really, I mean, maybe there were quite a few Balaams going around. And so how could we how would we really know what's happening? But among these verses and, um, you know, the translations have been done. I did not do them, but trusting these translators who worked diligently in these texts, Balaam is not only given by name, his lineage, he is called the son of Beor which is even more fascinating because it happens a handful of times in these texts. The Balaam in Numbers 22 is called the son of Beor. This, this particular location is interesting for the wall to even be. These inscriptions are located along the Jordan River at this place, which would have overlapped with regions Balaam had been familiar with, including his trip to Moab, as we'll see tonight. And then even more fascinating among these inscriptions is the description that this Balaam, son of Beor, was known as a seer. A seer or some kind of purveyor of visions or encounter with the gods. And we even get indication among the translated fragments that this Balaam sees things disturbing to proclaim. Now, that's not all that these fragments indicate. However, that proves as an accumulation of uh, translated fragments quite fascinating for our study tonight. It is more likely than not, in fact, that archaeologists have discovered what has been a preserved uh, memory among the uh, people of this region of an ancient figure known as Balaam, the son of Beor, 
the very man of Numbers 22 to 24. Uh, The references would have been preserved on walls such as this because of his regional prophetic work and because he was apparently of such reputation and significance that his stature would be solidified with these historical inscriptions. And um, the reason we want to know about uh, this figure, Balaam, is because of how prominently he figures in Numbers. Now, in the book of Numbers, we have seen a lot of names. Most of these names we have seen do not appear with any frequency in the book of Numbers at all, especially some of these genealogies or other places where we see a tribal list and heads of tribes and chieftains. Um, So many of these names are easy to gloss over. We must not do that with the name Balaam. Balaam is involved in a story taking up multiple chapters. That in itself is very intriguing as a reader because Numbers moves across many years and decades sometimes from one chapter to the next. When you have a slowing down and then a lengthy telling, and several chapters would be lengthy, of a story about this man, the reader must ponder, why do I need to know this story? What we're witnessing tonight is a pressing on the brakes. Uh, We have seen decades unfold quite quickly over the course of Israel. They are in their 40th year of wilderness wandering. And now the biblical author is pushing on the brakes to slow down for several chapters to tell you a story. And the story of Balaam extends from chapters 22 through 23 and 24. Of a 36-chapter book, three chapters are devoted to someone whose entire ministry or prophetic activity is as a non-Israelite. Balaam is not a descendant of Abraham. Balaam is not an Israelite. Balaam is a worshiper of many gods. Balaam is a prophet for hire. And the events of Numbers 22 to 24 are so captivating for the, re- for the reader that they take up multiple chapters in order for you to get the importance clear. We also want to keep in mind something that needs to be said out loud, though I think as readers we would notice it. There's no interaction with the Israelite nation as a whole in Numbers 22. They seem to be altogether oblivious to certain events that the biblical author is reporting to us. In other words, when Balaam comes on the scene and when a particular king of Moab comes into the foreground, you don't have mixed within that all of these tribes of Israel conversations, leaders of this clan or that one gathering together with Moses and Aaron. Those things are quite absent, actually, from the story. And and it's as if the Israelite communications among leaders and other figures fades to the background while this non-Israelite figure comes to the foreground, and for a lengthy period of text. So in this 40th year, we see a setup that we noticed last time we were together in the Scriptures. Israel has had a recent victory. In fact, more than one. Israel has defeated, in Numbers 22, near the end of that chapter, verses 21 to 35, two ancient Near Eastern leaders. One was a king of the Amorites named Sihon. Another was a king of Bashan named Og. These were well-known kings. These were kings who had conquered other rulers and lands. And yet Israel defeats them. The reason that story matters for Numbers 22 and following, the king of Moab is south of Israel's recent victories. 
Moab has not had to face any kind of embattled situation with Israel. But Moab is not in the dark as to what has just happened in Numbers 21. North of the land of Moab has been the fall of Sihon of the Amorites and the mighty king Og in the area of Bashan. And Moab is shaking in their boots that they're next. So the king of Moab wants to hire a prophet who will curse Israel so that they will be weakened and Moab can then defeat them. The motive behind the events of Numbers 22 is the fear of a king who believes he must be outmatched and so we must throw it to the gods to settle. We need a prophet who's going to invoke the the, the deity of uh, Israel and call upon curses for the Israelites so that they will not conquer Moab. Numbers 21 is necessary, in other words, to help us see why the king of Moab in this chapter is so afraid. Recent victories have filled him with a dread that politically he is now in grave danger. Balak is the name of this king of Moab, and his fear is reported in verses 1 to 4. It tells us that then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. That doesn't mean they're at Jericho. It means they're beyond the Jordan at Jericho, where Jericho would be a place inside the promised land to reference that they're opposite of. They're in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan where Jericho would be on the other side. In other words, the plains of Moab, their location for Israel will be right across from where they will enter and conquer in the book of Joshua. It seems significant that Jordan at Jericho is named. In the book of Joshua, this will be the first conquest area in the promised land proper when they cross the Jordan River. Jericho will fall in Joshua 6. The reader, if we are familiar with more Old Testament besides Numbers and Deuteronomy, we recognize that we are, being, we are seeing Israel positioned for the coming victory when the remainder of the wilderness generation dies. So here they are in the plains of Moab, and the king of Moab is terrified. And I want to add, rightly so. The reason he ought to be terrified is because he used to have more land than he does. What we discovered on Sunday morning together is that the king Sihon took some of his land. And so when the Israelites defeat those Amorites in Numbers 21, some of that geography that was up for grabs had earlier belonged to the king of Moab. So let's imagine him working out this logical train of thought. Sihon, who defeated me, has just been defeated. So I most certainly stand no chance, okay? In other words, the the people who've just defeated me have fallen to the Israelites. I am in a world of trouble, okay? So the Israelites come against me. What am I going to do? The Amorites who earlier defeated us have now fallen to them. It tells us in verse verse 2 that this this man Balak is called the son of Zippor. Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, You know, the news was just talking about it. It was a 24-hour news cycle there in Moab, right? This is just on constantly. And they're just seeing the horror and the images and the reports, right? The Amorites have fallen. And Balak is just white-knuckled and panting and knees are weak. And it says he, in verse 3, was in great dread of the people because they were many. He's dreading the Israelites. Moab, and I think this means 
King Balak representing them, but also others among him. They were overcome with fear. Notice the language and how extreme it is. He wasn't just somewhat worried. He was in great dread. Moab was overcome with fear. This, this language is not mere hyperbole. It's to say that's what motivates the actions that follow. The extreme fear gripping Balak and his Moabite nation. They're fearful about the people of Israel. And here's Moab's words to the elders of Midian who seem to be kind of a tribal and traveling group of people um, who would also have a vested interest maybe in Israel falling. Uh, Moab says to some of those leaders of Midian, this horde, meaning the Israelites, this horde will now lick up all that's around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. Well, if you have enough oxen, Um, who are uh, hungry enough, they're just going to destroy your area because of uh, licking up all the grass around them, eating it all up. Uh, He's saying the Israelites are going to be like that. They're going to come into our Moab place. They're going to come to our vineyards and lands. They are going to take care of this ground like ox take care of grass. And that's going to be it. They're going to lick it all up. It's going to be devoured. It's a picture of being consumed. Now... We are reminded that earlier in the Torah, we have in these five books of Moses, the second book, the book of Exodus, which also reports a fearful ruler who looked at a multiplying, increasing people and was filled with dread about what to do. This is not Pharaoh of Egypt in Numbers 22, but he does sort of remind us of Pharaoh. Because he sees an ever-increasing people that he fears will be a threat to him, and he wants them to be stopped. Now, the Pharaoh of Egypt took some drastic measures. Tells the midwives that every time a Hebrew male baby is born, they're to kill that child. The Hebrew midwives disobey Pharaoh's order, and rightly so. And Pharaoh will later try the decree at the end of of, uh, Exodus 1. And into the beginning of Exodus 2, that the babies would be thrown into the Nile River when born. And it's in order to stop what they perceive to be a growing political threat. Here, the Moabites and some of these Midianite elders are like Pharaoh of Exodus. And just as the Lord overpowered by his mighty hand and outstretched arm, the wiles and malicious acts of Pharaoh, we are prepared as readers to see him protect Israel. Moab complains to the elders of Midian about how consuming they feel like the Israelite forces will be. At the end of verse 4, Balak's message is going to be through messengers to Balaam. It says, so Balak, the son of Zippor, this king, who was king of Moab at that time, he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river. The river is probably a shorthand way of talking about the Euphrates River. So it's days and days, if even a few weeks of travel from this area near the Jordan River. But either way, Balaam apparently has a reputation. Because Balaam doesn't live in Moab next to the king, Balak. Rather, Balak, knowing of Balaam, sends messengers to him, believing that this is his best strategy. Now, this isn't even a political strategy. It's not a military strategy. It's a spiritual strategy. He's hoping what will happen is that Israel will be cursed by God through Balaam. And he will hire Balaam the prophet 
to pronounce these curses upon the Israelites. And his plan in verse 5 is that when he sends these messengers to Balaam, who's at the river near the land of the people of Ammah, and will be called, he will hear the following. Balaam is to be told, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. Well, that wasn't even recently, though, right? I mean, this, we're talking years. We're talking 40 years. A 40-year period has gone by, but he makes sure to invoke the fact that Israel came out of the mighty clutches of Egypt, which were ripped apart and Israel delivered in the mighty exodus. A people has come out of Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth. I mean, not actually, though, right? It, it was a, it, this is a way of saying, this is not a small problem I need your help with, Balaam. The reason I'm sending messengers to you and the reason I want you to come to my area of Moab is because this is a big problem I have and I can't deal with it on my own. They are dwelling opposite me. You can, you can sense the imminence that he perceives this threat to be. They seem to be a near and present danger. What does he want for Balaam to do? Well, the messengers are to convey this. Not only did this people, this, this people of Israel come out of Egypt. That was no easy task. So if they did that, what else are they going to do? Look how great in number they are. And now they're so close to me. What I need you to do in verse 6 is come now and curse them for me. Since they are too mighty for me. Balak, you can appreciate his honesty here. He does not look at Israel and think, well, you know, Og might not have uh, defeated them. Sihon didn't defeat them. I bet I could come out okay on this, though. No, he says, they are clearly too much for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. He's hoping that the, the gods will be involved to curse the people of Israel and that will weaken them. Therefore, this is not primarily a military strategy, even though the result would be a military one. He wants to defeat and drive them out. Did you notice the end of verse 6 and how this language sounds very similar to what God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? Balak is treating Balaam, a non-Israelite prophet for hire, as if Balaam has the authority that only belongs to Yahweh. Yahweh had said to Abraham back in Genesis 12, the one who uh, blesses you, I will bless. And he who curses you, I will curse. That the power of blessing and cursing belongs to Yahweh. And here's what Balak says to Balaam. I believe you have that power, Balaam. I believe that you... You who do, who do not have a life of devotion to the one true God. You, Balaam, I believe you have the authority of blessing and cursing. And even for Balak's confidence there, blessing and cursing is defined very selfishly. In other words, what would blessing look like according to Balak? Well, blessing would look like Balak winning. That's what that would look like. And, and cursing, what that would look like is Israel being absolutely debilitated and ultimately driven out. And therefore, Balak's very definitions of blessing and cursing are very much oriented around his preferences militarily. Uh, how he would understand blessing to happen and how he would understand cursing to happen. This is his defined perspective. In verses 7 through 14, there's an encounter between the messengers and Balaam. Let's watch this first encounter together. It tells us in verse 7, So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed 
with the fees for divination in their land. Hold on. Fees for divination. What are we talking about here? Well, again, this, this helps us recognize that Balaam, like there were cases for, uh, like there were cases elsewhere in the ancient Near East, was someone who had a reputation of trying to contact the gods, of reading the future, of perceiving into the unknown, of pronouncing things with some kind of spiritual authority, and he expected a check in return. In other words, this was a profit for hire. Divination would involve acts of sorcery and mystical uh, procedures that were forbidden by passages in Exodus and Leviticus, where this kind of presumed contact and sorcery and magical power wasn't something that any were to pursue, but rather Balaam here is seen as outside the ethical boundaries of God's people. He is seen as someone who is a non-Israelite operating as a prophet for hire in the ancient Near East. And people know his name. You, you go down the King's Highway in the ancient Near East and he's on the billboard. Okay, they call Balaam for, for all your prophetic needs. Here's a seer for hire. You know, he probably ran a Black Friday special. I don't know. I mean, I'm just saying like Balaam is the kind of figure though that if you want his services and you're willing to pay, hey, he will do it. Maybe Cyber Monday, I don't know. But in verse, in verse 7, they came to Balaam. They gave him Balak's message. This was not a short trip. We're talking about probably a few weeks of travel from the Jordan River over to the Euphrates River. Well, here's what Balaam says. Lodge here tonight. Now, that in itself would have been a great relief. It's like, well, we've gone so far. Thank you for the opportunity to have some hospitality and stay here for the night. We don't have to immediately go. That wouldn't have been desirable at all. So lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you. And the reason this is probably uh, something that involves a night that will pass is not only because Balaam is being hospitable, Ancient Near Eastern people were known for that. Give lodging for someone who's been traveling far. But he says, I will bring back word to you as the Lord or Yahweh speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. It's likely that we should understand Balaam here as expecting some kind of dream encounter that will happen in the night. In other words, he's saying, well, we'll talk again in the morning because a vision by night or some sort of dream experience may be what he's counting on. And whatever he expected to happen, whatever he hoped to have manipulated or passed along with some sort of word, this is what happens in verse 8. Nope, verse 9. In verse 9, God came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? Now, when God asks a question in the Old Testament, it's not because he lacks information. Similar to when he pursues Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. These rhetorical questions are meant to reveal. You see, these men with Balaam are people who have arrived to pay him to curse Israel. And Yahweh is the God of Israel who will keep covenant with Israel, his promises to Israel. He has an inheritance to give to Israel. And it will come to pass in the book of Joshua that the land of Moab will be inhabited by tribes from Israel. Moab is worried. Balaam is invoked for services to curse. And God comes to Balaam. Before the book of Numbers, we have recognized the Lord revealing himself in interesting ways. 
We have seen that the Egyptian Pharaoh in the days of Joseph has dreams that need to be interpreted. In Genesis 41, you see this. Later in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream in Daniel chapter 2 and in Daniel chapter 4, which Daniel must interpret. It can be the case in the Old Testament that something extraordinary and unexpected is revealed by God to some kind of pagan figure. God comes to Balaam. We should not use this as any kind of confirmation. Oh, Balaam must be a worshiper of Yahweh. That is not what we see after this text. Numbers 22 will not tell you everything you need to know about Balaam. You need more chapters and and texts that will follow to give you a fuller sense of who this character is. He is not all that he appears to be. So God comes to Balaam, who are these men with you? And Balaam says to the Lord, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come curse them for me. Perhaps I should be able to fight against them. And drive them out. Now you, gotta, you also uh, can recognize here how thorough Balaam is with his answer. Balak had sent messengers saying, Behold, a people's come out of Israel. I'm sorry, a people's come out of Egypt. And here the Lord says, Who are these people? And Balaam says, Well, so Balak has sent messengers saying, A people has come out of Egypt. And then also the messengers were to say to Balaam, They have covered now, these Israelites have covered the whole earth. And Balaam says that to the Lord as well. The messengers of Balak invite Balaam to come and curse them. And Balaam says that part too. In other words, Balaam is conveying the little bullet points here of what the messengers have said from King Balak. Perhaps I should be able to fight against them and drive them out. It's clear from Balaam's answer to the Lord, he has not withheld anything the messengers said. He gave it all. Or the Lord wouldn't know. But Balaam is on the same page. And he accurately relays the message. The Lord says to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people. For they are blessed. Earlier we heard Balak say with confidence to his messengers, to Balaam, uh, The one whom you bless is blessed. And I believe the one whom you curse is cursed. And God pronounces here, they are blessed because not Balaam has the authority, but the Lord has the authority and has already blessed the people of Israel. You shall not curse the people. This is a prohibition. Balaam is forbidden to do this. He is forbidden to follow King Balak's urgent matter. You shall not go, because to go with them would be to go and accomplish Balak's wishes. That's what a prophet for hire does. He is summoned, and when he arrives, he does what he's paid to do, and that is curse the people. And the Lord says, you shall not go. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. This alludes very clearly to the Abrahamic promises and covenant from Genesis. Balaam does not have the authority. Balak thinks he does. And that's one of the main lessons from chapters 23 and 24. Though Balak desires Israel to be cursed and defeated, the Lord's blessing is more powerful and his promises more sure than all of Balak's intentions and greater than all of Balak's money. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. So in verse 13, Balaam rose in the morning and he said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. We're not told here that he shares anything else. 
In fact, part of what the messengers had said to them is uh, come and curse them. Balaam just says, the Lord has refused to let me go with you. But he doesn't say the Lord has blessed them. He doesn't add all of the information from this encounter with the Lord in his response the next morning to the princes of Moab. He simply says, Balaam, he simply says in verse 13, the Lord has refused to let me go with you, which is true. It's just not all of the information. And then the princes of Moab rose and they went to Balak. Can you imagine arriving after all of those weeks and King Balak is ready to receive you? And it's only the same people who left all those days ago. There's nobody with them. Balaam isn't there. It must have been a grand, epic disappointment. They go back to Balak and they say, Balaam refuses to come with us. And even that wording is interesting. Because Balaam says, the Lord refuses to let me go. But they don't say that to Balak. They just say, Balaam refuses to come with us. But isn't it a little more complicated than that? I mean, that's not quite on the nose. Rather, Balaam had waited till the next morning, and an encounter with the Lord resulted in very clear prohibitions and uh, a, uh, a grounding of that prohibition in the reality that Israel is a blessed people. So not only does Balaam not tell the messengers all the information, when they return to Balak, they don't convey all of the information either. But there's a second encounter. Whatever the king promised, whatever the check was going to be made out to, whatever honor and treasure he was going to give Balaam, the king had second thoughts and said, I can do even better than I thought initially. I'm going to up the ante. The king refuses to take no for an answer. Because listen, if you're the king of Moab, I would reckon that you probably get what you want most of the time. I bet if you're the king of Moab and you've got all this treasure at your disposal and an army and messengers to serve your court, that if your administration says, I want this person to come here for this price and they refuse, you might say, well, then I'm not taking no for an answer. Let's send back for another negotiation. What we're watching in verses 15 to 21, the end of our passage tonight, is a second encounter, continued negotiations. That's what we're witnessing here. Once again, Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than these. It makes me think of a godfather situation. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse kind of thing. You know, I'm going to send all of these people with all of this status and all of this pomp and circumstance. And Balaam is just going to feel so compelled and so honored and privileged that he, this was just going to be like a knife through butter. He's coming. No, no question. So more in number, more honorable than these. You know, friends, we have to recognize there are plenty of people who do religious things who are like Balaam. They can simply be bought. That pour on enough prestige and social this or that or money or honor, then they will dance to that beat. That, in other words, Balaam here is going to end up going. And Balak's surprise is in store in chapters 23 and 24 as well. But the Lord had prohibited Balaam from going. The Lord had said, Israel is a blessed people. You shall not curse them. It can't happen because God says it can't happen. And yet this second round is going to result in some 
more deliberation on Balaam's part. They, they arrive, these princes do from Balaam. They're more in number and they're more honorable. And in verse 16, they come to Balaam and they say, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me. For I will surely do you great honor. And whatever you say to me, I will do. You can't get a bigger blank check than that. Whatever you say to me, I will do. This is to recognize not only might there be divination fees for Balaam to come. Those fees and that initial honor was probably merely a down payment. So that when Balaam does arrive, he and Balak can work out the rest of the negotiation. But Balaam, it's as good as done. Whatever you want is yours. Whatever you want, I will do. Oh my goodness, that must have been very appealing. Great honor. Whatever you say to this, the king of a nation in the ancient Near East, promising this kind of honor and bestowal, come curse this people for me. Well, Balaam, you know what he doesn't do? Balaam doesn't say, um, you guys get out of here. He continues the conversation. He answers and says to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. And now at first you think, okay, you know, that's, that sounds like a pretty good response. Uh, this is like a no, isn't it? But then he says, so you two, please stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. Well, hold on. Hold on, Balaam. I mean, you almost get a sense of of wise manipulation and negotiation. And I mean wise in a prudent sense, a shrewd sense on Balaam's part where he says, you know what, guys, listen, you know, I can't even for Balak's very house, even if it's full of silver and gold. You know, I just I can't go against, uh, you know, the Lord's refuse. It's as if he is continuing to instigate further conversation rather than viewing verse 18 as shutting it down. I think we should see verse 19 as keeping it going, saying, you know, let me let me uh, let me go ahead and we'll uh, spend the night here and then uh, I'll let you know what more the Lord says. But hasn't the Lord already said? Right? So, so we're, we, we should have an eyebrow raised for thinking of Balaam in a, wait a second. Is he really against going? Or is it simply a matter of getting to the right price and he's trying to make it seem like there's just nothing? Let me just see what the Lord says, guys. Because I just don't think even if I had Balak's house full of money that I would go. Well, in verse 20, God comes to Balaam at night. And he says, if the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. This should imply, I think, a dream, some kind of visionary encounter in the night, similar to what Pharaoh had experienced or Nebuchadnezzar had experienced in Genesis and in Daniel. But the reader here is no doubt perplexed that though God had said earlier, you shall not go. The Lord says to Balaam, if the men have come to call you, Rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. Now, there are some lingering questions that we will deal with in our next time together. But this at least raises the question for the reader. Why is it that this encounter seems different? And why is it that in verse 21 it says, So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. It does not say 
He woke up the next morning and said, you know, the Lord says, I'm only going to say what he tells me. And listen, he already told me the people are blessed. Balaam doesn't tell any of them that. So he goes, knowing what the Lord has said about the Israelites, they are blessed, you shall not curse them. But he doesn't tell that to the princes of Moab. He arrives with the leaders of Moab and Balak thinking he's going to come and do what? That he's a prophet for hire ready to curse the Israelites when the Lord has already said, you will do what I tell you to do and only say what I tell you to say. He rises and saddles on his donkey and he makes his journey. A journey that would have been quite a number of days traveling westward from the Euphrates area all the way toward the Jordan River. Now, we should consider what lies ahead in the story of Balaam. He's going to journey on this donkey to Moab. And there's a whole lot that needs to be said about what happens there with this journey on the donkey in the Balaam situation. That's the second part of Numbers 22. We will handle that together on Sunday morning. Numbers 22 to 24 is a fascinating section of Scripture. Especially in the Old Testament book of Numbers, where so many verses in chapters 22 to 24, all these three chapters are devoted to the oracles or the arrival and oracles of Balaam. But we are going to be later told in Numbers 31, the Israelites will put Balaam to death. He does not live on beyond this book into some later era of Israelite conquest or join them later. In Numbers 31, 8, We are told that there were Israelites who had put Balaam, the son of Beor, to death with the sword. The book of Joshua confirms that. According to chapter 31.16 in the book of Numbers, Balaam had earlier facilitated acts of apostasy among the Israelites. And we don't read about that coming in Numbers 22. We do find out about that later, and it probably references Numbers 25, which happens right after these Balaam oracles end, where Israel commits unthinkable acts with Moabites and engages in apostasy before the Lord. Balaam is involved in this. Balaam does not fear and love Yahweh. Neither did the Pharaoh in Genesis. Neither did Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2. We shouldn't look at Numbers 22 to see Balaam as some true Yahweh worshiper, but rather the Lord in an extraordinary way here with Balaam's life, revealing things about the Israelites that Balaam hasn't divulged to those who are paying him. Paying him seems to be what motivates the, uh, let me go ahead and uh, sleep one more night on it and we'll see if the Lord has anything else to say. Balaam is interested in this idea of gain. That's not only implied in the Old Testament. The New Testament is crystal clear. Listen to 2 Peter 2. In 2 Peter 2.15, it talks about false teachers that Peter has to write about. And they are compared with the Old Testament person named Balaam. It tells us in 2 Peter 2 that these false teachers have forsaken the, the right way and they've gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing and was rebuked for his own transgression. Second Peter understands that Balaam is someone who transgresses the commands of God. They see, Peter sees, just as we can imply from the Old Testament already, that Balaam's interest in in money may be a motive. And in second Peter two, it's quite clear. He loved gain from wrongdoing. 
In other words, he's willing to do what is wrong if the benefit seems appealing enough. And it just seemed at first that he wasn't as driven. You know, he has this encounter with the Lord the first night. He sends them back, washes his hands of that. But then, days and days later, they show back up. Looks through the peephole. I've seen them before. And then they continue with, uh, you know, the, the message from Balak. I want to give you anything you ask for. Balaam's like, well, maybe I should sleep on this one more time. In Jude, verse 11... Jude writes about false teachers and says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Balaam's error is forsaking what is pleasing to God for the sake of something worldly. Being driven by that. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus says, I have a few things against you. You have some here who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they may eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Revelation 2.14 is arresting to the reader because it invokes language there that with Balaam's activity, it was a facilitating of both idolatrous and immoral actions among the Israelites. Balaam... In Numbers 22 is not what he appears to be. Someone who may truly know and love the Lord and be a true prophet of the Lord and come to do what is best for the people of Israel. More texts will reveal over time the true character of Balaam. And in the New Testament certainly confirms it. Balak wants Israel to be cursed. Balak wants Israel defeated. This story sets up a series of chapters that will cause us to think about the fact that the seed of the serpent is positioning itself against the people of God. The Moabites, representing the seed of the serpent, want the seed of the woman to be vanquished. Now, of course, this for the Bible reader on the timeline of the Torah gives us reason to say, well, okay, if the Israelites were to be dispossessed from this area, if they were to be defeated and driven away, What would that mean for the promises and covenants of Yahweh? Because he has promised that Abraham's descendants will dwell in that land. He has promised to bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them. What if if Balaam curses Israel and they are defeated by the Moabites? What would that say about Yahweh? What would that say about his character, his goodness, his wisdom, his faithfulness? The, The reader is being given opportunities to have this set up for us. Setting up the questions, can we once again see the faithfulness of Yahweh? Will we once again see his covenant kept and preserved? Will we once again see his enemies overcome by his power? Will the seed of the serpent be vanquished? Balak intends to invoke the spiritual powers and principalities, if you will, to defeat the people of Israel. So it makes us ask even larger questions than military ones. Is God God of the heavens and the earth? Greater than and supreme over all principalities and powers? Balak is hoping not. Balak's putting all of his chips on Balaam. And he's wanting Balaam to come. And for whatever price Balaam will name, I want you to curse the Israelites. But God will show that in his covenant-keeping faithfulness, and ultimately in his plan for a Messiah, when there is curse and corruption and opposition... The Lord brings reconciliation, peace, conquest, and deliverance. We need someone, we need Christ Jesus, who comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. What Balak is calling for here 
is the kind of activity in Genesis 3 world that we would long instead for the blessing of God, the shalom of God, the peace and wellness brought to a world in sin and transgression. Balak only wants to further this problem. We long to see the faithfulness of Yahweh demonstrated so that we could have advanced and preserved for us the hope for the seed of the woman who will come to overcome the serpent. And reading about what happens with Israel and Moab gives us further insight into that big redemptive hope. Let's pray.